Hey, this is Nick here. I wanted to send a quick message to the founders out there. If you're raising your first round of capital and you're not located in the Bay Area, New York City, or Boston, we'd love to connect with you. Newstack leads deals for founders that don't fit the standard Silicon Valley profile and are located in undercapitalized areas. If that describes you, or if you know a startup that fits that description, please send us an email. It's team at newstack.vc. Now here's a word from our partners. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Kane Shea joins us today from San Francisco. Kane is a partner at Root Ventures. Root Ventures is a Silicon Valley-based venture firm with investments in Esper, Particle, Wild-Type, Nautilus Labs, among others. Kane is also founder of Brilliant Bicycle Company, a direct-to-consumer brand based in Santa Monica. Prior to Root Ventures, Kane was an early-stage investor at RRE Ventures, where he sourced investments such as Airwave, Floored, and Cryptnostic. He has a background in software engineering and project management at both Remotive and Microsoft. Kane, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so tell us more about your background. I kind of went through it quick there. Yeah, so you know, you covered my professional background pretty comprehensively, but but I think the part that's important here that informs a lot about why I do what I do and why I invest in what I invest in is uh, I grew up near Niagara Falls outside of Buffalo, New York. And it's this, frankly, it's, it's kind of sad post-industrial burned out factories in the mid-Atlantic. And, you know, as, as a kid, we would literally wander around like the old Nabisco warehouse, which was abandoned or like Union Carbide facilities, et cetera. Wow. And when I started a career in software engineering, it, the gap in what different industries considered state-of-the-art was huge. And in pure software, there's a lot of really smart people competing. Frankly, like I thought this would be a comparative advantage to look at large industries, which are still lagging in, in a lot of technologies that we in software take for granted. And that's why I do what I do now at Root Ventures. What did you study in school? I studied uh, computer science and design. And frankly, I wasn't the best CS student. Uh, <laughs> Neither was I. But yeah. But what that led me to do is like I, I had to I had to like desperately look for hacks in order to pass. And so like I started helping out in, in the uh, mechanical engineering or the or the electrical engineering labs. And I found a lot of opportunities to bring basic optimization and, and computational algorithms into different areas of engineering and, and really make a difference. And so that's you know, even in undergrad, I, I was seeing this pattern of taking software and, and CS principles and applying them to other industries. Have you had work experience in, you know, applied engineering capacities to industrials or, or heavy industries? Or has it, you know, been more um, sort of big tech software side? So at Remotive, there was a lot of hardware engineering that was going on. Uh, not necessarily on the uh, product side, but internally in working with our manufacturers, working with different contractors, like writing basic scripts or APIs or 
or little programs to collate and and clean up and munch data together Mm -hmm. became pretty standard for us. Now, at the bicycle company, we saw the same thing as well. These are industries that were working in Excel and Word and emails and files titled like certification underscore final V2 underscore uh, signed. In, In these roles, I was doing a lot of what could be considered software engineering, but really just to like keep the operations going as efficiently as possible. Yeah. So Kane, have you guys done any investments since the uh, pandemic broke? Yeah. You know, we were pretty fortunate in our timing and that we were about 10% deployed in our fund when the pandemic broke. We didn't see any reason to aggressively slow our investing. Um, in fact, like about two weeks after pandemic broke, we had four term sheets out and uh, a few of those are, are closing right now. Awesome. Awesome. Was it tougher to get to decision? You know, I think our, our team is pretty small. There's four of us and we operate pretty independently. So besides the awkwardness of transitioning everything to Zoom and the eye fatigue of staring at a screen all day, there hasn't been that much difficulty in in the closing process. Um, I would say the biggest source has been, can we get comfortable with investing and deploying capital into folks that we've we've never met in person? And I mean, frankly, I think it'll be sent to us for all I know. I haven't actually seen them blow the chest. Uh, so that's <laughs> a little strange. But yeah, it's 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 been going. And the origin of this was that when we grew from two to four people, our process suddenly took twice as long, which we realized was a bad thing. That's not what's supposed to happen. So we actually <laughs> yeah. had to re-architect the process to take between half to the same amount of time. And that was about a year and a half ago. Wait, how much time is it taking you? Uh, two like to three weeks. Three weeks from initial uh, meeting to decision? Yeah. Yeah, we try to keep it to two, but it, it slipped to three because of, again, I think the awkwardness of meeting on Zoom. That's amazing. How do you guys handle it when, you know, you engage with a founder and it is the right fit, but maybe the timing is off. They're not quite ready to, to, you know, raise the next round, or maybe they're not quite ready for the level that you want to come in at. How do you deal with those? I would say as a seed fund, it's rare that people aren't quite there yet for us. Um, it's more often the case that they're actually beyond where we would invest, in which case, if we like them, we try to introduce them to later stage funds. But the reality is, like at an early enough stage, any marginal capital is probably beneficial, and the company and founder is a lot more flexible, and we try to be too. You know, those are checks anywhere between like five hundred thousand to a million and a half, which you know the the nominal change isn't that much. it's it's five hundred thousand dollars. but if you think about the stage we're at, that that's anywhere between like a hundred to thirty three percent of the actual check we're writing. And so it's it, it gives us some flexibility. Got it. What if anything has changed about the way you guys invest, you know, since Covid occurred and everyone's sheltering in place? We've had to more intentionally try to spend time with potential founders and and then founders after the fact whether it's phone calls, casual texting, Zoom, et cetera, because we, what we've lost is kind of the casual or serendipitous interactions 
adjacent to like the, f- the formal pitches and meetings where actually, frankly, I think a lot of metadata comes out of. And, and so coming up with ways to interact with, with those founders outside of the formal meetings has been the toughest part. And, and that's what we've been uh, working on the most. And then from a market standpoint, are there certain markets that you're considering more or considering less, you know, with these circumstances? And again, I, I consider myself lucky here. Our firms, well, and specifically my emphasis on a lot of uh, industrial automation or robotic technologies, there's been between neutral to increases in demand as a result of, of COVID. Things related to labor shortages, inability to to get certain numbers of people on site, or just general uncertainty about supply chains. Like I, I think we're seeing potential customers start to emphasize like OPEX efficiency more as a result. Yeah, it's interesting because I've noticed a bit of a double-edged sword with the portfolio, with our portfolio. We do have a lot of robotics and hard tech companies, for instance. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. on one hand, I'm hearing from the founders, we can double down on product and spend a lot more time on that, which is great. On the other hand, when they only have a couple of prototypes, <laughs> mm-hmm. especially in an office location. It's like mm-hmm. they can't all collaborate to work together, yeah. you know, on, on the equipment. Uh, are you noticing similar situations? Yeah. Our, our portfolio companies that um, are in the process of developing hardware have to come up with ways to set shifts and like cleanliness protocol. So engineers can come in on shifts and, and work on the system. That has definitely slowed down productivity for the portfolio companies a bit, but there is precedence around that, especially like folks coming from companies uh, like Apple, which generally had a lot of their engineers flying back and forth from overseas. Like a lot of them just kind of fell back into their natural, like how to figure out shifts and working on weird time zones uh, and working remotely. So it's not ideal, but it is, uh, it's not intractable either. How about triage and you yeah. know dealing with the portfolio? Tell us kind of how you guys have approached that. So the first thing we did was go through the portfolio and get a sense for everyone's burnout date. And then we did our best to get everyone's burnout pushed to 18 months to 24 months if possible. Now for the companies that had just raised in Q4 or Q1, they were in a, a good spot. The next option was companies that had venture debt facilities. You know, we encouraged them to draw down more debt than they had previously planned and and just to pause hiring until we had a better sense for how the pandemic would affect their business. And unfortunately, there was a small minority of companies which was caught in some unfortunate timing and uh, ultimately had to do some furloughs uh, with headcount. So between a few of these levers we had to pull, we just got everyone to 18 plus months of, of runway. That's pretty good. And how big is the portfolio? The, you know, I shouldn't have the exact number off the top of my head, but it's, it's in the high 20s. Good. And remind us, you know, what's the thesis at Root and what's your focus? The thesis at Root in general is we are trying to be the first institutional capital into highly technical founders. My focus within that is in industrial automation, robotics, but I have colleagues like Lee Edwards, whose focus is primarily software and developer tools. 
and then colleagues like Chrissy, who spend a lot of time looking at hardware, logistics, and manufacturing. It's pretty broad by design. The one thing that's in common across all the founders is, is uh, they come from strong technical backgrounds and the products they're making include a lot of technical prowess. Yeah. How are you thinking about recent events in Minneapolis and Black Lives Matter and you know what you can do at root to help address existing issues and racism within tech? The elephant in the room that's impossible to avoid right now in any conversation is the protests, police brutality, and, and minority representation. You know, I, I think it's worth saying on the record that as I look at our portfolio and our partnership, we are diverse in some ways, but not in all the ways, and certainly not in some very important ways, which are relevant now. And that's on us. Like, it's it's easy to blame the pipeline or blame the system or, or blame biases, whatever. But fundamentally, at the end of the day, it's our team. We make the decisions, and those decisions haven't reflected well on diversity. And that's something that is top of mind for us. That's something that we don't really have anything to hide behind on. And, and that's something that we hope to change, you know, actively. Good. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I, I want to touch on a few different areas today because, you know, you've got some great background and personal experience and then, you know, investment experience, of course, and um, some of the the industrial automation spaces and 3D printing spaces and robotics. And my conversations with your colleague, Avidan, he's, he's always mentioning your name and um, you know, I'm glad we, we have a chance to connect on this, but, you know, maybe we'll start out with just touching on 3d printing. You know, we, we could probably spend a whole episode on this, but super hot in the two thousands and early 2010s and lots of ups and downs in that space. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time early in my career in, uh, CNC and water jet and laser in a lot of ways, even though most of those technologies are about cutting and ablation as opposed to additive, in a lot of ways, I, I see that as you know a precursor to three D printing. Can you give us an overview of kind of your stance on three D printing now, and you know, are you bullish or bearish? So it, I'm very bullish uh, on three D printing, and and you bring up a good point, which is like if I if I think back to the early 2010s, a lot of naive investors lost a lot of money uh, making three D printing bets. There was a lot of kind of breathless, hypey press around this like Star Trek silver bullet kind of vision of 3D printing it, where it would magically solve all problems and everyone would have a 3D printer on their desktop. And it was naive. Look, you, you bring up CNC, like CNC is an amazing process, but we still cast stuff and we still forge stuff and we still mold stuff, right? Like CNC does a lot of things really well, and it's unlocked a ton of capabilities for us. Mm -hmm. 3D printing is the same. It's a new class of technology. But if you're going to treat it as something that we expect to displace all those other capabilities, like you're going to lose money because that's just, that's just not how you know, technologies, or, or in this case, uh, manufacturing capabilities get adopted. If I look for founders and companies treating 3D printing as a new class of capabilities with its own intrinsic values and own intrinsic disadvantages, those are the places where I think we're going to start carving out real big value because like, that's what it takes to, to build a massive company here. It's like understand where you're going to be extremely competitive and groundbreaking and understanding where like, look, frankly, if you're making uh, spoons, like molding is super efficient. We're really good at it. 
there is no like competitive advantage in molding. You can kick that off to like thousands of CMs yes, um, or contract manufacturers. And, and so that is, if anything, the signal to noise ratio has gotten better because I think a lot of people that joined the hype cycle are now out of the hype cycle. And, and the folks I see working on it now are um, sharper and, and more driven than ever. Mm-hmm. Well, and we have seen some some really nice success stories there. You know, without naming specific company names, you know, there's it's also sort of been a key foundational technology, you know, as an enabling technology for rapid prototyping and, and custom components, you know, for like the, the big companies like SpaceX and such. How do you frame up the categories of 3D printing and kind of where you guys are focusing from an investment standpoint? There have been some early successes in hardware, but the way I look at it is that the printing hardware is actually the least interesting part to me. That's not to say there won't be other winners per se, but Mm -hmm. if I think about um, what it takes to 3D print something, you have to design it, you have to digitally design it, or a part rather, you have to digitally validate that part. Once that part's validated, you, you have to make that part producible on a, a certain machine. And every step there represents a piece of software, which frankly, you know, I'm, I'm sure you've worked in CAD or, or SIM or something like these are pieces of software that have been around for decades. There's mm-hmm. maybe a half dozen public companies doing tens of billions of dollars of revenue a year that have been making the software the same way since, since my grandfather <laughs> was literally drafting with a pencil on a table. <laughs> yep. And and so where actually where I see a lot of value waiting to be unlocked is in the software stack leading up to uh, production of these of these new advanced parts. Love it. Don't want to go too deep down the three D printing rabbit hole because we, we could do that. Want to hit on some other areas today. You know, I used to work in industrial automation. I was a product <laughs> manager. Uh, founded a couple products in that space specifically. You know, from your standpoint, I I saw a lot of archaic industries and a lot of really slow-moving tech in this space, a lot of slow-moving customers and and innovation. Um, What do you think have been some of the biggest challenges to the progress in in this industrial automation space? So this is something that I always tell uh, entrepreneurs that I speak to uh, regarding industrial automation, which is... There are processes where if you if you look at it as an outsider, especially as an engineer, you're like, well, this is clearly an inefficient process. I know what the deliverable should be like. Therefore, there is an obvious solution here. And the challenge there, which I'm sure you've seen, is that in industrial processes, there's often parties extracting value from systemic inefficiencies. Mm-hmm. And they're often hidden when you're observing as an outsider. And that makes it hard unless you know exactly where those perverse incentives exist. You can find yourself running into a brick wall at the last second because you'll just be like black bagged or, or, or stonewalled by some party or contractor or individual business unit. That's like, Hey, that's our golden goose. Like don't touch it. Mm-hmm. And we see this in construction. We see this uh, in oil and energy, extractive industries, manufacturing, which is there is this, cobble together uh, web. Uh, it's not even a value chain. It's like a value web. And you have to very clearly know where you can access inefficiencies in the clean way and have the support of people willing to pay and influence that decision on your behalf. Because the, the strictly speaking efficient engineering solution 
almost runs into uh, someone who's ready to stop you in order to preserve their their revenue. <laughs> well, there's there's inertia, right? That's a piece of it, and then of course when you have like a a heavy industry or a physical system with a lot of dependencies, you know, multi system network failures in that system can be not only really hard to diagnose and correct, but really expensive. Not that failures aren't expensive in software, but I just feel like the way that problems are addressed and iterated on and and fixed are just faster and much more you know versatile in the software space. Yeah. Um, so you yeah. you bring up a, a a really good point, um, and, and I think there's like a pretty simple matrix uh, that that we think about that captures, I, I believe, the point you're trying to make, which is if I think about an action that uh, a heavy industrial system makes on, on one axis, there's cost of failure per individual mm-hmm. action. And then on the other axis, there is frequency of that action, right? Ideally, you want something that happens a lot that has low individual cost of failure, mm-hmm. right? And something that I think about is uh, soft fruit harvesting, right? Picking strawberries. If you can increase the throughput 10%, like an extra 0.5% failure rate, sure, go for it because the strawberry gets dropped, who cares? Mm-hmm. In the exact opposite corner is like, I'm docking a spacecraft to a space station. I'm not doing this that often, and I definitely cannot miss. <laughs> yeah, right. Certainly, like, you know, it, it's a gradient, but to the extent that you can be in that first quadrant, which is I'm doing this thing a lot, which means I have multiple chances to like drive efficiency. And also, if I fell, it's not that big of a deal. That's great. So, yeah. I believe that's kind of what you're trying to get at. Yeah, no, 100%. And like, not a perfect science here, but I might even add a a Z-axis, which is like reputational risk and skill risk of the person that's responsible for the system, right? Because in in a lot of these old world industries, you know, people are worried about their jobs being replaced, first of all. Their skill sets might be oriented to, you know, older technology that they've been comfortable with and using for decades. And even if they are comfortable with change and they're willing to implement new tech, there's also this huge reputational risk if something doesn't work and their system failures, uh, you know, their neck is on the line. Whereas you take an industry, you know, like tech where software issues, nobody likes a a software issue that costs money, right? But people are much more comfortable with rapid change, experimentation, new innovation, and the people responsible are typically those that embrace, not in all cases, but at least in, in a lot of tech, especially out where you're based, you know, people are, the types of people are the types that embrace new technology and look for new advancement on a regular basis. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's understandable in some industries that uh, there, there is a fundamentally more uh, conservative approach to technologies. Actually, something that I see pretty often getting pitched is the idea of like a fully automated machine tended machine shop, mm-hmm. um, you know, the CNC's that you alluded to earlier. And I would love for this to exist. But at the end of the day, like it, there is huge intrinsic challenges here where well, let me give you an example. Uh, speaking to a machinist friend, he he told me something called uh, he told me about something they call the million dollar club, which is have you made 
an error which causes a million dollars of damage. <laughs> wow. Um, and that's it's not a club you like, want to be in. Exactly. And and that's like if you're using, you know, CNC machines that cost hundreds of thousands or, or millions of dollars and you're working on parts that are very high value and you fuck something up and you cause that tool to crash, not only have you wrecked that machine, but you've taken the line down for how many days or weeks when, when sure. they got to service that machine. And OSHA um, and safety issues too, right? Yeah. So again, this goes back to like the areas that I'm interested in and, and that I try to push entrepreneurs towards, which is like, can you carve out atomic processes, which are by themselves lower risk and can be more accepting of newer technologies? And, you know, that's a challenge. Yeah, talk more about that. You know, we I feel like we've been kind of bearish on the industrial automation case so far, but you know, where are the opportunities and why why do you get excited about it? Well, the opportunities themselves within certain industries, right? Like the in, there will be parts of the industries which, you know, I want to touch with the 10-foot pole, and then there's parts in it where I feel pretty excited by. Um now the industries at large that I've been tracking recently uh, include construction, the extractive industry, so it's like mining, oil, and energy, and certain classes of manufacturing. And again, it's not specific industries per se, but within industries, I believe we'll find opportunities that kind of fit in the the nice corner of that quadrant. Actually, here's a, a an example which continues to blow my mind, which is we're all familiar with just the billions of dollars being poured into autonomous passenger cars, mm-hmm. right? I, I just saw Pony Eye raise like $400 million, Waymo, Cruise, you know, the Baker's dozen of others, just like the sheer amount of capital invested. And frankly, like, I still don't really trust an autonomous vehicle in the streets of SF. That said, Rio Tinto, which is like one of the largest mining companies in the world, has been operating autonomous haul trucks since 2017. Wow. Did not know that. Which, yeah. So there, if you haven't seen a haul truck, you should Google it. They're totally whack. These are like, these are dump trucks where you could put like 50 normal cars in the back of. They're oh, insane. They're yeah, huge. Same. They run between like processing facilities and mines. You know, someone at Rio Tinto was basically like, look, you're trying to solve this really hard problem of driving in on a city street. I have 20 miles of straightaway. There's nothing else around it. And literally any human within miles is a trained technical expert. So I'm going to make this truck autonomous. Smart. And Great application. Yeah, exactly. And, and this, is, this is an example where, uh, in fact, the, the application that we find in, in heavy industrials is actually cheaper and quicker to value than the application that, that we're working on here in the Valley. Mm. And so if you dig around enough and, and really understand, again, all the different parties, third parties, individual business units inside some of these industries, you can find opportunities like this. You know, I just saw Cruise Automation got a license in either California or maybe the broader city of, of San Francisco to mm-hmm. operate autonomous vehicles. I'm excited for it. Look, as a customer, as a techno-optimist, like, I want that to exist. I'm bullish on it. As an investor, I will gladly take <laughs> the subsidized research and components and manufacturing and compute that they've developed and go stick it on other machines that will make me money faster. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What about like, you know, we've seen some of these really hot 
tech names, hot startups like uh, Zoom Pizza and Cafe X that have these, you know, cool consumer consumption applications and they're taking these, you know, robotics and articulated arms and kind of dressing them up quite a bit. And we, we've seen those, I mean, some of those we've seen, you know, fall on really hard times here. What do you think of those applications, you know, using industrial automation and robotics in, in these sorts of applications? So it's never good when a company fails, right? Like a lot of smart people put in good effort and ended up losing their jobs. And it's it's never a happy situation uh, with Zoom, with some of the recent hardships at Cafe X. That said, you know, if I, if I were to try to take a pragmatic approach to understanding why things are going the way they're going with them is like, frankly, they're extremely naive approaches to automation. If you watch their demo videos, like you said, they're using a six axis robot arm to do tasks in, in the kitchen. And to me, this is crazy for a few reasons. One is, you know, I said this was a naive approach to automation. The analog I will give here is Imagine if instead of designing the automobile, we tried to design robot horses to drag carriages around. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. You're designing around abstractions and interfaces, which were in the case of like, you know, commercial kitchen, which were designed for people. If I think about the Zoom video they always show, they use a six axis arm to move a pizza two axis into a pizza oven. Overdesigned. It's extremely overdesigned, and it's overdesigned because it uses an oven which is designed for a human operator, and now they need a system to take something off of a conveyor system and put it in another device designed for a human. So you're like forced to design around these weird abstractions. Like humans are good at some things, they're not great at other things. There's a lot of like safety and redundancy and kind of human uh, interaction bits built into that commercial oven, which is also why it's like half the size of a room. If you have a fully automated system and you're trying to make it as economical as possible, like you shouldn't be using that many components designed for human operators. The issue with Cafe X is slightly different, which is if you look at the machines they're serving coffee out of, uh, it's a class of espresso machine called a super automatic. It's the kind you find at like airport lounges where you, where you hit a button and it does the grinding and the milk frothing and just like jams it together and serves it to you. Yep. And granted, they put like fancy branded plates over the super automatic machines so you don't see that they're just like generic machines. But the bet with Cafe X in my mind is that is someone willing to pay a premium to watch a robot arm give you a cup of coffee that you would otherwise get from this machine if you just had a cup dispenser and a credit card swipe? <laughs> that feels like a hard bet to me. It's a fun novelty, probably the first time people use it. And then, don't know. Yeah, and, and again, like I like the vision of Cafe X, which at a high level is people should be able to get high quality food and drink at lower prices because we can squeeze a lot of efficiency out of these systems. But both of these approaches, by using an overbuilt arm to execute tasks around human safe machines, is naive and, and it costs a lot of money. At this point, if you're a VC, you've heard of Carta. You've probably even accepted securities from a portfolio company on the platform. It feels like every new company is using Carta, and there's already 16,000 VC-backed companies on the platform. They also offer tools and services for VCs like fund administration. 
Carta has an army of fund accountants delivering high-quality service and dedicated teams of engineers constantly improving the functionality of their user-friendly investor platform with in-app quarterly reporting, real-time fund metrics, LP portals, and more. It's also easy to switch from an existing fund administrator or to augment your in-house team with their service. Learn more about their services at carta.com forward slash investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. We actually just had uh, Jason Calacanis on the program. I know he's a big proponent of Cafe X, but I'm going to have to ask him about that next time we chat. I mean, it's shocking to me. So we're, we're hardware investors. We do a lot of deep tech, and we're one of the very few between the coasts that focus between the coasts. Mm-hmm. And I, I can't tell you how many... I mean, we see so much, right? Like, everyone does. The deal flow is crazy. But the hardware-oriented and deep tech-oriented deal flow is, you know, a lot of it finds its way to us. And I just see so many where the bomb is, you know, the bill of materials is just extremely long. And the points of failure on these systems are crazy. I mean, I'm a product manager that like built like three different hardware products in my time. And I could not imagine proposing some of these concepts to to my management at the time like they they would have laughed me out of the room because it, it just the unit economics don't make sense and the failure rate is is going to be crazy now are you talking about consumer hardware or kind of hardware at large usually consumer it applies to both but usually in consumer applications i find people are trying to bring you know, a rocket launcher to a knife fight, right? It's it's kind of this example with this eight-axis articulated arm that you said that, uh, you know, needs to do a job that's two-axis, right? You could use like a Scara robot or even something simpler than that. <laughs> so, you know, why the over-design? I mean, if there is a UX, a consumer experience element, like people are really going to pay a ton of money to watch a dancing robot arm, that changes things, right? But if you're trying to do a job and do it well and do it efficiently and trying to cut a lot of costs out of a system by removing humans, why are you introducing so much cost into a system and introducing all these points of failure, right? If you have a lot of like, if you have a very complex system with a lot of interdependencies, when that hardware system breaks down in the field somewhere, whether it's a an enterprise application or a consumer application, that's really hard to fix, and you're losing revenue in the meantime, right? It's not like software where you can have a remote knowledge worker fix it from anywhere. Yeah. On the consumer side, I'll caveat it by saying I don't look at a lot of consumer hardware investments. There are challenges beyond engineering in, in any consumer product. And frankly, like that's just not an area where I have a competitive advantage. So kind of scoping this the mm-hmm. conversation to the hardware and design part, like frankly. Apple's just set the bar really high. Yeah. Um, I honestly just believe that's part of it, right? Especially consumer software and, and consumer hardware that's subsidized by software like iPhones have a unique feature 
which I don't think gets spoken about enough, which is only in these categories is the best thing also the mass thing. In no other industry do you have the thing that is the best also be the thing that is used the most. And that's the economics and the revenue that you can extract from, you know, selling an iPhone is significantly different than what you can extract from selling a Ferrari. That's why like Ferrari isn't the biggest car maker. And I think if you're thinking about consumer hardware, that is often a nuance that's missed and people will try to design the Ferrari once there's a really clever capital efficient way to continue to extract value from that product, it's not going to be the mass product. Interesting. Huh. Never, never thought of it with that lens. So just to kind of pull on that thread a little further, you know, what's your take on the capital efficiency or lack of capital efficiency and just the, the capital intensity of, you know, whether it be B2B or B2C, but just, you know, hard tech and deep tech oriented startups, you know, how do you think about financing these companies and then balancing yeah. traction and progress, you know, with capital efficiency? I'll just say it's the best time to be a founder in one of these industries. There is a lot of capital. There is a lot of interest from investors. That said, I think the number one thing you can do to manage cash flow if you're developing hardware is hire good talent. My partner here, Chrissy, her job at Apple and then Square for like a decade was making sure the things got produced on time, on schedule correctly. That that involves spending 200 days a year in China. That involves like 20 hour sprints in factories, right? Like you can't assume, the naive thing to do would be to assume that uh, I have an idea for hardware, therefore I can just pass it off to CM and they'll make it and it'll be great, right? Like the act of engineering for manufacturability and then engineering the actual manufacturing of it are discrete skills mm -hmm. and good hardware companies have armies of engineers in those buckets and you would never in in software you would never have your uh ux designer also run devops so why would you assume that you could build something just because you have a cool like cool design for hardware like there's entire massive parts of managing that life cycle that that requires good talent mm-hmm so circling back to the question, you know, how do you think about financing these companies and balancing their capital efficiency? And yeah, tying it back together again, like there is more investor interest in doing these things now. I believe that if you can demonstrate that you have a solid understanding in house in the economics of manufacturing, you know, but by the way, like this includes not just the engineering of it, but also from negotiating supplier financing, figuring out. Is there like venture that that can that can be used to? There's a lot of alternative. I don't believe that money for equity should be converted into inventory if it doesn't have to be. And so the way I think about it is like, do I believe these teams have the understanding of all the stones and that can be turned over and levers that can be pulled to make this process as as capital efficient as possible? Mm -hmm. Do you think the milestones for you know raising rounds and are different, and how are they different? Like. If you could give us a high level at, you know, seed, C plus, series A, maybe series B, hard to generalize, you know, on such a big category, but can you give us a sense for those? 
Frankly, I, I don't know if there's even a good generalizable answer because every, um, at, at least, you know, talking about specific industrial hardware, there's, there's a lot of different things about different applications. You know, it, it's, again, I, I think it's less about specific milestones and demonstrating that you have the knowledge and capability on the team to execute. Mm-hmm. While we're still talking about industrial automation and the industrial space and innovation there, how do you think jobs will be affected I mean, is this like a net negative on jobs? This is a hot topic, right? A lot of VCs, a lot of other people talk about this, but you know, with with more automation and more robotics, is this a net job eliminator or job creator? So, look, I'm not a labor economist, so I don't about the net job question there. Frankly, I just don't know. But what what I will say with confidence is that some classes of jobs will be eliminated, and this is inevitable. Well, let's just look at some examples. Like, when's the last time you saw a crossing streeper? Like, these are literally people whose jobs was to remove the horse shit from crosswalks, right? No one now is like, we should, oh, like, we should go back to that time. It's It was awful. Literally, like, streets were covered in horse shit. Um, <laughs> well, or carriages or wagons. I mean, all those industries exactly. went away, right? Same with, like, lamplighters. When's the last time you saw something? Exactly. When's the last time you saw a lamp lighter, right? Like, I'm very happy that we don't have someone lighting explosive gas every night on every street corner. <laughs> like, that was, it is great that we automated that. We don't have knocker uppers because now you can buy in a, like, your phone has an alarm clock. You don't need to pay someone to come knock on your window every morning. Like, these are jobs which got automated away. And, you know, it's invisible to us because we accept it as inevitable now that we are living in it. But I acknowledge, Look, the pain of these transitions is real, Mm -hmm. right? I'm not going to pretend it isn't real, but at the same time, it's inevitable. And what I mean by that is companies and industries can either choose to weather the pain, and I don't know what will happen. Some will win, some will lose. But the only way to guarantee your loss is to bury your head and like ignore automation because you want to preserve some jobs, which within our lifetime will seem absurd as a lamplighter. Yeah. No, I mean, I couldn't couldn't agree more. I think that's that's very fair. You know, progress and in innovation is inevitable. So you're either a part of it and part of making it productive in some way, or, yeah. you know, you let it happen all around you. You know, what's one piece of advice you'd give for founders, like early stage founders in some of these automation categories or, uh, you know, doing something in uh, robotics? Yeah, so this goes back to the earlier point we talked about and the challenges of industrial automation is like, I think the critical thing is really understanding who gets value from what you're proposing and who, if anyone, will kind of be an implied enemy because you're eating their cake, right? Understanding the perverse incentives and the value chain in these processes, I I believe, is critical. Now, in, in our investments across maritime and shipping, construction, and oil and energy, like every one of those companies has clearly identified like, here is the specific party we need to sell to because by selling to them, we are able to exert influence in this process versus if we sold to this other party, which, you know, will will sandbag us because of like the systemic inefficiencies that they benefit from. Mm. It's not enough to propose the automation. You really have to understand where that automation sits and who's paying for it and who's willing to pay for it. I like that. Are there some categories within sort of the broader deep tech space or, you know, 
some of these capital intensive investment areas are are there some subsectors or subsegments that you're just avoiding uh yeah a few pharmaceuticals again this is like that has its own specialized class of investors for a variety of reasons yeah material sciences the unit economics of materials companies can be pretty challenging and again this isn't to say that people won't make money here it's just for our strategy and fund size and talents like these are areas we've chosen not to pursue for now Oh, passenger aerospace, that's a big one that's gotten more <laughs> popular traction recently. Yeah. But I mean, look, I, I've been in helicopter factories and it's like friends with straight up helicopter pilots. And my conclusion from all that is like never get in a, a vertical takeoff aircraft unless you really have to, because the failure, look, the default mode of a fixed wing aircraft is like you can relatively expect it to be gliding. The default mode of a VTOL aircraft is it's literally falling out of the sky. And there's just like a lot of weird edge cases that occur. And look, I, I, I dream of building my own like kit aircraft. Like I love this stuff. I will put myself in arbitrary amounts of mortal danger for the adrenaline of it. But if I'm thinking about like what it takes to certify power plants and airframes for passenger aircraft, like I can't see within, at least within the span of, you know, the funds I'm working at, how to make those economics work. Yeah. I don't blame you. I mean, those investors that are are getting into those spaces, they, uh, they're braver than I am. Just to, to be clear, I'm happy that investors are investing in it because I want, I want VTOL aircraft to exist. I want a new generation of supersonic transport. This isn't to say like, I don't want this to exist or I think it shouldn't or won't exist. I don't believe for our fund and for a lot of our peer funds, it is an area that makes sense to invest in, but God bless them, more power to them. <laughs> yeah. So Ken, I, I heard a rumor that you're starting a podcast. Well, it's it's 2020 and I work in tech and live in San Francisco. So that's just a reasonable <laughs> probabilistic bet. Um, now, the difference between an idea and a follow through is, you know, the important part. So so I'll let you know if, if the latter actually happens. Okay. Um, another fun thing I came across on the profile, uh, a side project called Transformer Poetry, a book of famous poetry reimagined by OpenAI's uh, GPT-2 language model. <laughs> I don't even oh, know. What, yeah. I don't even know what to ask specifically, but would love to hear you know the inspiration for that. Yeah, so so it was a kind of odd moment in time where um, it, my close friend, uh, who's the co-author of that paper, David. You know, he he lives with me, and that was published, I believe, end of February last year. Shortly after Les Murray, the the famous Australian poet, passed away, and and I happened to be reading some of his poems just because he's a very influential contemporary poet. And I guess you know, just sitting at home with with David there doing his work and reading his poems, I I, I just thought it'd be interesting to mash together famous poems in GPT two. You know, part of this was just that random, you know, stew of events that occurred. But but the other part that that drove it was personally, I don't actually I don't believe that anything is sacred or uniquely human. I'm pretty reductionist in my views that way. And I enjoy using technology to push little wedges into creative processes and seeing what happens. Now, I actually read the book Elements of Eloquence by um, Mark Forsyth shortly after. And it's, it's like a technical breakdown of poetry. It's great. I highly recommend it. But I wish I'd read that before the Transformer Poetry Project because in retrospect, Transformer Poetry, like really like as poems, they're pretty bad. 
um, <laughs> now that I understand how poetry is, you know, the like details of how poetry is appreciated. Mm-hmm. That said, look, five years ago, computers weren't even in the same arena, right? The fact that I can say, yeah, the computer poem sucked. Like, at least we're, we're, we're in the same arena now. And, sorry, I say we as if like I'm also a computer, but like at least the computer's in the same arena. And that's interesting to me, right? Yeah. Literally, the first thing I say in, in Transforming Poetry is like this book is an experiment. It is not meant to have academic or literary value. And I believe that this was an experiment. I want to see the reactions in the world from, from the world of literature, from technology. Like it was, I like experimenting, you know, I like, I like starting little fires. Was there one outcome or one piece of poetry that came out of that that was, you know, well received and worked well? I think in a superficial reading, they all kind of work. I think it was more entertaining than well received. So, okay. for instance, like <laughs> Dr. Seuss poems got really dark, which was funny to me. And then on the flip side, there was an Edgar Allan, uh, the Raven became really like hopeful. Oh, interesting. Right. So, it was like the system generated. English, but things in poetry like meter, like like the elements of eloquence, they were generally lost. And so I don't think any was particularly well received. I think some were like funny, but hey, like, you know, ask me again in 10 years and we'll see, we'll see where the technology is. <laughs> yeah, right. Kane, what resource, you know, it could be a book, blog, video, an article, a tool, but what in particular have you found valuable and you'd recommend to listeners? A newsletter off the top of my head, uh, it's called The Prepared, hmm. and it's run by a guy in New York named Spencer Wright, and it's not venture service specifically, it actually just covers interesting things in industrials, um, in manufacturing, in logistics, etc. And I think not only does it provide very interesting insight into the industries that that I talk about and I invest in, but the community that Spencer has put together is a tight-knit group of like passionate experts. Um, so I'm a big fan of that one. Books I've read recently that I've really enjoyed. In 2019, it was uh, The Perfectionists, which I'm pretty sure you would like this. It's by a guy named Simon Winchester. And the book is about how humans bootstrapped precision which is this pretty trippy thing if you think about it because high precision machines need other high precision machines to make them and so like how do we get to high precision machines in the first place oh interesting and every yeah it starts with the steam engine and it ends with the uh, gravity wave probes and every chapter moves an order of magnitude in scale and precision and he talks about the critical breakthroughs at every generation of precision that enabled us to bootstrap the next generation of precision and it's just like a fascinating, I mean, it, it, it is by definition a, a, his, a history of disruptors. So I really like that book. Uh, the book I haven't read yet, but I'm very excited about this year to read. It's sitting on my desk right now. It's called Rust, The Longest War. And it's about humanity's efforts and history in fighting corrosion. Take it with a grain of salt because I haven't read it yet, but, but I think this is going to be a very interesting book. Super cool. So. Kane, what do you know you need to get better at? What do I need to get better at? Um, <laughs> I mean, the blithe answer here is I need to get better at investing <laughs> because that's my job. But what I think, you know, we talked earlier about how people that spend a lot of time in either like process engineering or manufacturing engineering or, or mechanical engineering are by default more conservative and cynical than people in, in software. Uh, and part of that is because of the cost of failure 
in their practices. The fine line that I have to thread as a VC looking at these opportunities is like, when is the optimism the opportunity and when is the optimism naive? Mm-hmm. And I don't have, I mean, that that's the million dollar question, right? Or rather the billion dollar question. And so I do believe that I'm still more cynical than I should be to be fully effective. But the hard part is like ratcheting up that optimism and uh, seeing like what is the equilibrium with the highest uh, expected value. Interesting. And then finally, what's the uh, best way for listeners to connect with you? If people are working on or thinking about opportunities in, in the spaces or adjacent spaces we've covered, I would love to learn more. My email is just my first name, Kane at root, like tree roots dot VC. That's Kane like citizen Kane, uh, not like the biblical Kane. And uh, similarly on Twitter, my uh, handle is just at Kane. So pretty, pretty easy to find on email or, or Twitter. There you go. Well, an investor, you know, that I love the thesis. I love the chat. It's it's very near and dear to me and, and hits close to home. So, you know, thanks so much for elaborating on the thesis and, and going deep on uh, on industrial automation. Yeah. So, look, the last thing I would say here is, uh, besides thanks for having me on the show, is as a fund, as an investor, these ideas and frameworks are constantly evolving. They have to. The, the industries are evolving. The market is evolving uh, on the financing side. This is what I believe right now. But this is by no means static, nor necessarily correct even. And so I welcome anyone who either wants to challenge these or, or to think more about them to, to contact me. Perfect. Awesome. Well, his, uh, his email is kane at root.vc and his handle on Twitter is at Kane. So he's easy to find. And uh, I encourage you to reach out to him. Kane, thanks again for, uh, for joining us. This was great. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Nick. That will wrap up today's episode. Thanks for joining us here on the show. And if you'd like to get involved further, you can join our investment group for free on AngelList. Head over to angel.co and search for New Stack Ventures. There you can back the syndicate to see our deal flow, see how we choose startups to invest in, and read our thesis on investment in each startup we choose. As always, show notes and links for the interview are at fullratchet.net. And until next time, remember to overprepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. Thanks for joining us. 